So it might be uh, English class when you're a kid, but do you remember what an oxymoron is? You guys hear, don't point, that's not appropriate. Uh, I said oxymoron, that's the literary device where you take two words that shouldn't probably go together and you mesh them together. So here's a few of them. So um, jumbo shrimp is an oxymoron, right? Doesn't make sense. Um, uh, the, an accurate estimate doesn't make sense. Awfully good, you guys use that phrase, right? Awfully good. Um, to climb down, that's an oxymoron. Um, the um, close distance, uh, we use that phrase. I like this one, to grow smaller. Um, these are all oxymorons, and there's a bunch of them. And uh, when you hear them, they just, you kind of go, all right, yeah, I know what you mean, but when you really look at it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And the two words that are on the screen right now can be, for some of us, considered an oxymoron. Joyful giving. I think the reason why those two words become hard for us to mesh together is that, is that we're blessed with resources. We understand that we work hard. We're Northeast Ohio, rugged individual people who know the value of a dollar and what it means for us to eat what we earn and to, 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 to cherish the possessions that we've been given in our life. And so the idea of joyfully giving is something that might carry with it a tinge of conviction. I, I love the, the book that was written by um, Randy Alcorn. Some of you have read Andy, Randy's books. And one of them is, um, the title is Giving is the Good Life. And in that book, he tells the story of a precious young lady by uh, 10 years old. Her name was Riley. And Riley was gearing up for Christmas and she was really excited about buying her dad a new bicycle. And mom was helping her search online to purchase a new bicycle for dad. And, um, and she had one of those advertisements that was on the side that she clicked on and it had a video connected to it. And it connected her to an organization that provides specially engineered bicycles for individuals with disabilities. And as Riley watched this, her 10, little 10-year-old 10 heart just got stretched. She, she saw individuals who were able to experience the joy that she had riding her bike. And she decided that day that she was going to help someone get one of those bikes. So she told her mom, hey, mom, I'm going to get a bike so that I can give it to someone else. And so her mom did a little research and found out the cost for some of these bikes was like the same cost, thousands of dollars, same cost for like a used car, right? So, um, so mom's a little anxious and she says to Riley, honey, it, it's extremely expensive. And mom probably knew that Riley's bank account was very small at this point, right? And, and, and Riley just committed to so She did chores, she saved her money. She, um, she actually, you know, you think about Christmas time and we think about our get list, right? And, and Riley was focused in on her give list and ultimately, through that process, the first year that she did this, she raised um, enough at Christmas time to give three bikes to three very special young ladies. One of them had cerebral palsy, um, another that, that was suffering from a genetic disorder, another young lady who um, was 13 years old had um, spina bifida. And uh, Riley got to put on her little Santa cap and go over to the house to deliver this bike that she helped to provide for this. And she, um, she says this about Ava, the 13-year-old who received her first bike um, from Riley's investment. She says, I like to go fast. This is what Riley says. I like to go fast on my bike. I like to get sweaty on my bike. I like to feel the breeze in my hair. And so does my friend Ava. 
She pumps with her arms, not her feet, but she really flies when she's on that bike. After Christmas, Riley was able to raise another four, the funds for four more bikes. She had the time of her life, and she said to her parents with an exclamation, it's best Christmas ever, <laughs> best Christmas ever. And when we hear that story, we think about joyful giving, and we recognize something that happened in the equation of a 10-year-old's mind that for some of us, maybe we haven't had the privilege of experiencing yet in our life. Uh, Jesus taught in the book of Acts chapter 20, a statement some of us are familiar with. He said, it's better to give than to receive. And if we're honest, I'm guessing that, that that's one of those teachings that Jesus gave that we're like, really, really? Is it, is it really better to give than to receive? What I love in the Greek text, it says something that's a little nuanced. I want you to hear it this morning. It says, there is more happiness in giving than in receiving. I think it's important for us to remember, brothers and sisters, as we talk about this this morning, that money can't make us happy. We know it can't buy happiness. But in the act of giving money away, one of the things that can happen is that we can experience the joy of the Lord in our life. We can understand something about generosity. I think, uh, I'm gonna say this multiple ways today, but generosity does produce joy. Uh, when we don't take our stuff too seriously, what, what ends up happening is that joy produces generosity. We're people who, instead of being closed-fisted with our resources, we find ourselves open-handed to see what God's gonna do with them. And I'm gonna give you some examples of that today of people who've given, like Riley, generously, sacrificially, and at the, it, the end of their time, they found themselves being able to be a part of something that was greater than them. Now, I, I shared this last week, and I'm, I'm, I'm being transparent, that as we go into this Worthy series, we talked about it last week, um, an incredible time in history when the first temple was built by King Solomon and his father, who made the sacrificial process of establishing the ability for the temple to be built. And in that process, what we get to see, and we're going to see it in the text today, is that these people did not give grudgingly or out of necessity. Um, they were not grumpy or discouraged by the process of taking what they had earned, the resources that they had put together, and sitting it in front of the Lord and asking him to do something incredible with it. In fact, what we're going to see is it's marked by great joy. And, and I admit uh, in my own life that this is an area, uh, I, I grew up working hard. I, I started working when I was young. My dad flipped houses and we always had a job. Um, I always had that paint mark on my elbow, you know, that you forget to clean up. Those of you who are painters, you know what I'm talking about. And, and we, we worked hard. And early on, I remember after getting my first few paychecks from my dad, that uh, you, you started to realize like that G.I. Joe toy or the Transformer or whatever, you started thinking about it in terms of how many hours do I have to work, right? And, and it starts to be uh, mentally like, oh, that's 12 hours. Oh, that's 32 hours. That's, you know, a month, right? Like, and you start thinking about value and is it worth it? Is it worth my time and investment? And, and today, as we talk about generosity, we're talking about something that cuts across that, that doesn't necessarily see my resources as my resources. And, and this is illustrated in an incredible way in Israel today. Um, if you go to Israel today, to the city of Jerusalem that we all know so much about, about 20 miles to the east and a little bit south is a sea 
that it's there, that the Jordan River where Jesus was baptized, the Jordan River flows into this little sea. Uh, It's the deepest in the world. You guys know it as the Dead Sea. Uh, And what's incredible about the Dead Sea is that it has no no outgoing source of water. The water comes in, the resources stay there, and it makes this, I've been there, this this real rich black mud and it makes the water, uh, you can float in the water really easily, but it's, it's just the resources are all staying. And in contrast to that, just a, the miles north of that is the Sea of Galilee, the one that shows up in the New Testament a lot where we see stories of fishermen experiencing, um, you know, amazing experiences on this, this fresh water that's flowing and living and vibrant still to this day. And I celebrate the fact that that's what I want to be like. I want to be like that, that thing that's booming, um, that's overflowing with life instead of something that's stagnant and stale. King David understood that in his own life when he desired to be a part of providing for the Lord that he worshiped something that was appropriate. If you were here last week, we talked about the, the establishment of a temple uh, that was or a palace that was going to be appropriate for God, and it's record, re- recorded in Second Chronicles, or First Chronicles, chapter twenty-nine. Um, in the first few verses of, of, of First Chronicles, chapter twenty-nine, it, it summarizes an experience that King David had, and and, um, and prior to this, he was sitting in his palace, and in front of him was the Ark of the Covenant, um, and uh, an incredible place of memorial and recognition of God's provision for his people, the place where the Holy of Holies at that point was. One time a year, a priest would go in and offer appropriate sacrifices on the top of this, uh, this ark uh, in honor of the sins of mankind and the forgiveness that comes from the God that offers forgiveness through atonement. And King David just sitting back, I can just picture him sipping his, his latte on his porch and, and looking out and seeing a tent that is surrounding this place. And he said, God desires, deserves something more. My God desire, deserves something better than what he's experiencing. And so he describes now in these next few verses, beginning in verse three, what I'm going to call giddy excitement about what was going to be a building project that was going to bless generations going forward. The, the temple is going to be built. It's going to be incredible. It's going to be expensive And at the end of the day, it's going to be an appropriate uh, recognition of the God that he worships. He says this in verse 3. He says, Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own of gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. If you're taking notes, if you have your Bible open, I would encourage you to circle or underline. It's okay to write in your Bibles. Uh, to circle, underline. All the times that David talks about giving or setting aside or appropriately responding to God, he talks about the number. These numbers are incredible. It's 3,000 talents of gold, of over 7,000 talents of refined silver, overlaying the walls of the house, and for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for the things of gold and silver for the things of silver. What's so special about this is the work that he's going to do is to set aside the resources and then King Solomon is going to build this temple and it's gonna be an appropriate place of worship for God for some 400 years. Um, so, So you might think about the sacrifice, the cost 
that was represented by this. The, the discouragement maybe of, of lost things that could have been purchased, but you see just the opposite. It goes on to say, who then will offer willingly consecrating himself today to the Lord? Uh, this, this term consecrating to the Lord, it's the same word that we get to be filled up to the point of overflowing. And, and here I sense this with David as he writes, I'm just overflowing with recognition of God's provision. And then verse six, we get to see others catching on to this vision. It says, then the leaders of father's houses made their free will offerings. That's not grudgingly or out of necessity, but it's free will offerings as did also the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of thousands and of hundreds and officers over the king's work. So now the leaders are investing in this. It says this in verse seven, they gave of, for the service of the house of God. And then again, these massive numbers, 5,000 talents, 10,000 dairies of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, precious stones. They gave to the treasury of the house of the Lord and to the care of Jehel, the Gershonite. So here they're giving into the hands of those who they trust and, and asking them to honor something that was really important, the vision for building this temple. I want you to just catch this. We learn it from Riley. We learn it from those who participated in the, the building of the first temple that generosity really does produce joy. That, that when we are people who are open-handed in our life, generosity, we say money can't buy uh, happiness. But what we recognize is when we allow ourselves to be generous with the resources that, that we have, what we recognize is that uh, we get to participate then when we're generous with our resources in God's resources. And the God that I worship and serve is a God who lacks nothing. So, so when we celebrate this, what we get to see later uh, in verse 16 of chapter 29, we get to see this. I just love this description. We get to remember that it was all his anyways from the beginning. Oh, Lord, our God, all of this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name. It comes from your hand and it is all your own. That is an open-handed recognition that it was all God's anyways. It is different than the closed hand recognition that my stuff is for my glory, for my comfort, for my benefit. And I think it's important for us to catch that everything you and I have, it's on loan. Uh, so somebody, as we start to talk about this, we, we talked about it last week, but we say like when you go to the doctor and they start poking and prodding, um, some, sometimes they poke and prod because they, they're just not kind. They're not gentle enough and they, they can hurt you because they don't have a good bedside manner and they're harsh. Uh, there's other times when they poke and prod because they find an area that needs to be cared for. It needs to be treated. It needs to be taken seriously. And, and as I read some of this and I see this example of their overwhelming excitement to participate in what God's doing, it may evidence for some of us, something that we need to take seriously. I, I told you I'm convicted in this area. I like the way Mark Twain uh, once described this about God's word. He says, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bothers me. It's the parts that I do understand. You, you understand what he's saying there is he's saying like, this is a pretty clear recognition in scripture that everything that we own is the Lord's. That, that the, the resources that we have are 
intended. He's not asking us to be ascetic, to give everything all of the time to him. But what he's saying is the posture of our life is to be open-handed. And when we do that, the side effect of that can be that we get to experience joy, that our stuff does not own us any longer. I think it's possible for us to take our stuff a little too seriously. Um, Some of you may know the story of the famous Franklin expedition. British British explorers, 128 of them, decided that they were going to visit the North Pole back in 1845. And um, it was a a lavishly outfitted excursion. They they say that the boat that they had was beautiful and gilded. Uh, It had the finest china. It had incredible meals prepared for these these explorers. Uh, They had a big pipe organ or an organ that they took with us, with them. Um, they They had china and cut glass wine goblets. And uh, one of the things that they didn't um, do when they added what would be a a library that would be better than some in some universities on this boat, they they forgot to take enough coal for the trip. And so so as they started to literally freeze, um, they realized they, they, they just didn't have the right mindset for this trip. And you guys know the tragedy is that all 128 explorers lost their life. They they were trying to hold on to something that um, was unnecessary and neglecting what was precious. And, and one of the saddest stories or most telling stories about that was years later when the, the search party found these individuals, the remains of the men who had set off um, to walk for help. So they had, uh, they had walked on the ice to try to seek help. What they found was one particular skeleton that was dressed in a fine blue cloth uniform edged with silk braid. Um, and in his hand, he had a silver set of cutlery in his hand. Can you imagine? So, so, so here he is holding on to something that is really irrelevant and in the process neglecting what is essential. I think, brothers and sisters, it's important for us to remember that true joy, the joy of the Lord, is found by living open-handed. Jesus modeled this to us. I think you could say it a different way. You could say, second point this morning, it's by not taking our stuff too seriously. So joy is found by living open-handed. It's by not taking our stuff too seriously. And I think it's important for us to remember that Jesus talked a lot about money in his life and his teachings. One third of the parables address the subject of stewardship. And Jesus wasn't there to manipulate, like I'm not here to manipulate. But instead, what he recognized is that money Um, is something that is indicative, the way we deal with our wealth and resources is indicative of what's happening within our heart. In fact, sometimes what you catch with Jesus's teachings, and we'll look at one of those today in Mark 10 briefly, is that Jesus did not always see wealth as a sign of abundance or blessing from God, but instead he recognized the incredible temptations that come with wealth, the desire to be selfish, to self-care, to ignore the, the role that God wants to play in our life. In fact, in Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17, Jesus um, gives us this incredible moment in history recorded in three of the four gospels. It says this, and as Jesus was sitting out on his journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and he asked him, good teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? I'm guessing Jesus had a lot of these encounters. And this was a man who had the potential of being a Christ follower, a disciple of Christ. Jesus is going to invite him to be a disciple of his, to follow him. 
And it says, and Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. He's honoring um, the, the role of God and recognizing God. And then in verse 19, it says, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all of these I've kept from my youth. Um, but, but the one that Jesus doesn't mention here is to envy. And this is probably what was happening within this young man's heart and mind. It says in verse 21, and Jesus looked at him and he loved him. This was not an act of discipline, but instead it was an act of love. He says to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. We're going to talk about that next week, what it means for us to have treasure in heaven when we sacrifice here on earth. But Jesus says, go, uh, release yourself from the burden of those things and then come follow me. Just a, a moment in history that was electric. And then we see the sad response in verse 22. It says the man was disheartened by the saying that he went away sorrowful. Why? Because he had great possessions. At that moment, what he said by his actions is that his possessions owned him. That, that Jesus invited him to have one of the most amazing invitations, one that each of us has the privilege of being invited to by our God when he asks us to be his disciples, his followers. And to be his follower, in this case, he understood the heart of this man, that he was closed-fisted with what he'd been given by God. Then Jesus goes on to say this in verse 23. He says, looks around to his disciples. These are others that have already committed themselves to following Jesus. And he says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I want to ask you why Jesus would say that. Is wealth inherently evil? No. Does Jesus ask every person who follows him to give up everything to follow him? No. Um, Aestheticism, poverty does not guarantee that a person is spiritual or holy. Don't miss this. That's not what he's teaching here. But what Jesus is saying here quite clearly, I think, is that he's articulating the fact that they, some individuals who are wealthy, allow their wealth or the pursuit of it to be a distraction and in some ways for it to define what it means to be or not be dependent on God. And so when he says those who have wealth, um, it is difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, like he says elsewhere, you can't serve two masters. Verse 24, and the disciples were amazed at his words, but then Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. And then he gives this uh, hyperbolic, um, overwhelming statement where he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. We know how small the eye of a needle is. Um, I don't think it's good for us to get hung up on this being anything but um, Jesus saying it's impossible without the hand of God. The, the camel would have been the biggest animal in Palestine in that time period. I, um, you guys know when you go to, to like some of the pet stores near us that you can take your pet with you. I love this picture. Check this out. Um, so uh, this, this, happened in, this happened in Michigan. Uh, a guy just decided at, you know, Petco or whatever that he needed to take his camel with him, right? Uh, you, you can get this picture that what Jesus is saying is that he's saying that it's impossible. Now, we understand this about salvation, that our salvation isn't earned by our good actions, um, that is dependent on the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us. 
But Jesus is teaching a particular lesson and he's saying if you're filled with your stuff, then it's gonna be very difficult for you to understand what it means to be filled by the presence and blessing of, of the God of the universe. So, so the challenge is right in front of us. It's convicting and challenging, but uh, I, I think this commentator, Doug, Douglas O'Donnell, puts it very well when he says, wealth often fosters the notion that this world has much to offer. I, I want us to, to just notice this. So, so it's, a, it's kind of a, um, a mirage, right? That, it, it, that happiness can be found by gathering one more thing, by collecting the, what, what will meet our desires. It, it is a myth that that offers to us the kind of happiness that many of us long for. He says this, wealth often numbs our minds to the reality of the joys of heaven and the torments of hell. There's always something more on earth to buy or to look forward to when one has wealth. Wealth often lures us into believing that everything can be had for a price. In most cases with wealth comes self-indulgence, self-reliance, self-importance, and self-security. Wealth has a way of ruling one's life, ruling one's time, ruling one's vocation, ruling one's commitments, ruling one's concerns. And his point is, is God doesn't want anything else to rule our life other than the God that we worship and serve. And so the two cannot compete with one another. And I especially appreciate his insight here because I think that the distraction of if I just had or if I accomplish or if I can have this thing, then my life will have meaning and purpose. And he's saying something very different here. So it's not an argument against blessing. All blessing that we have comes from the Lord. It's making sure that we understand the source of our salvation. And later it says in verse 26, the disciples were shocked and they're like, well, how can anybody be saved? And it says this in verse 26, and they were exceedingly astonished. Then they said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and he said, with man it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible with God. So, so here we get to see this example. It's better to give than to receive. It's better to be a person that allows ourselves to experience what God has for us, even in the times of great unknown. Who knows what's going to happen financially in 2023? Who knows what's going to happen on the horizon? For many of us, there's so much anxiety associated with, um, with interest rates raising, cost of living increasing, and it is quite discouraging for some of us. And I want to encourage you, if you're there, it may be a time in your life where the Lord is just saying to trust me. Together, we can handle this. And I leads us to the third point this morning, and that is joy produces generosity. We've already said that generosity produces joy. We see that. We learned that from, from Little Riley and other examples in Scripture, those who helped to build the temple. Uh, the second point that we talked about was the fact that in that process, if we don't take our stuff too seriously, the Lord can bless us. And then this point, joy produces generosity. Uh, what we get to see is this overwhelming recognition of people who've been blessed by God, that they not only are aware of it, but they want to be generous with it. Let's pick back up what we read earlier in verse 16 of First Chronicles 29. It says this, O Lord, our God, all of this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name, it comes from your hand. It's all yours. Remember, we read that earlier. 
In verse 17, it says, I know, my God, that you test the heart and you have pleasure in uprightness. In other words, you know what's going on inside of us. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all of these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. You know what's incredible about this recognition is that many of them are not going to experience firsthand King David's warning. They're not going to experience this uh, finishing of this project in their time. They're, they're caring about the next generation of worshipers. It's, it's not necessarily about their own benefit, but instead what they're doing is they're doing something that's incredibly sacrificial and worthy of the God that they're worshiping. So joy produces generosity. And you see this in the text when it describes what they were doing on behalf of others. I, I think it's beautiful. Um, one, of the, one of my favorite missionary stories um, comes out of the Sudan. In 1893, um, the Sudan was a, a, a huge part of Africa, about 2,500 miles in Africa, that was occupied by from some 60 to 90 million people. And at that point in history, there were no missionaries that were spreading the truth of the gospel. People didn't know the name of Jesus there. And there was a group of people, um, one individual, a uh, teacher in Canada by the name of Roland Bingham. And, and um, Roland um, was praying for those who were lost. He'd heard about the, the situation, and he ended up founding what would be known as Sudan Interior Mission. And in that process, he shared in Canada to his farming neighbors the needs that they had and um, shared a vision for going to England and then to ultimately end up in the Sudan to share the gospel. And um, in the first time that he started to share this, he had, I think, $10 to his name, which uh, even back then, it wasn't much, um, but it, was, it would not get him to England. And so he started to share the need, prayed, um, and the Lord provided. In fact, one fellow farmer uh, emptied out his bank account to support this, and he said he'd borrow more if it was needed. Um, and so they were able to make it to England, um, he and his two partners. And then when they made it to England, they just prayed. They had five days or a week that they, they just prayed, Lord, we need more resources in order to, um, to fulfill what you've called for us to do. And, and there was this young woman um, named Mary who had received an inheritance of about $300. So today that'd be the equivalence of about $10,000. And Mary just felt compelled uh, not to buy some more dresses, not to um, invest in, in something that would make her life more convenient or easy. Uh, but she gave the entire gift and then later would help raise another $200 to help support these missionaries. And um, I love in the words of Roland Bingham uh, what he would say about her sacrificial gift. He said, the gift of this, um, this woman came just at the moment of our greatest need. And it made possible that first journey up into the Sudan. Out of that gift of 50 years ago, when he wrote this, he said, in a very real sense has come the great harvest of hundreds of converts every year, which we're seeing today. And today, SIM has about 4,000 missionaries serving in 70 nations around the world. And there was an incredible movement of the gospel that happened in the Sudan. And so you can look at this sacrificial gift from Mary and you can say, man, she's giving up so much. Uh, but I think it's also appropriate for us to celebrate the fact that due to the fact that she gave it with a sense of joy and a sense of worship and returning to the Lord that she was able to experience 
what some would call the good life. And I, I love that description. Giving is the good life. It leads to generosity and generosity leads to joy. Church family today, um, I, I think that it's appropriate for us to um, understand what Proverbs uh, in the message translation says about our life. It says, the world of the generous gets larger and larger, but the world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller. Uh, I want to challenge you today. It's, it's my privilege as we kind of poke and prod into some areas that are convicting for us. I want to share with you some ways that you can be intentional about investing um, and, and a few of those, uh, it's, I'm not making this up, several of you, there have been three of you this week who have sought me out, sent me an email, sat down with me and, and said, hey, I want to give more, where should I be giving? Or I'm ready to step up and serve. And I want to share with you that first question, I want to give you a couple ways that I think that you can invest in what God's doing for his glory. The first is that we're a part of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, and the Christian and Missionary Alliance is a movement of churches that have a commitment to fulfilling the Great Commission. And so when we give to the Great Commission Fund, you can do it through our website. We don't take any money out of that or it goes straight to the mission field. And when we give towards that, what we're doing is helping to advance the gospel around the world. I want to encourage you to be generous. You've been generous. I want us to keep being generous to the Great Commission Fund. A part of that is what is called comma services. And this is um, the relief and development arm of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And often um, this is called on to when there's a tragedy or crisis in a community. I, as a missions pastor, had the privilege of being a part of Kama's investment in Puerto Rico after some pretty heavy hurricanes had torn off the roofs of buildings and impacted people's lives. And we got to go in. And some of you were a part of this. You gave generously um, many years ago to Kama. And then in that time of need, we were able to help families and individuals who are greatly impacted. Churches, uh, one church, I remember worshiping in a church that had no roof, um, but we were able to provide the resources that they needed to not only build a new roof, on that church building, but to expand their ministry there in the community. So sacrificial giving, never maybe get to see the fruit of it, uh, but common services is a really meaningful way and a tangible way that you can give. Uh, I want to encourage you. One of the things that the text talked about was do, giving directly to the work of the Lord. And here in our community, uh, we have needs in our church family. There's responsibilities that we have. And some of you know we've been behind on our budget it does not mean that ministry stops here, um, but what I'm excited about when we think about the future, kind of two things that come to mind for me. When we think about the future um, of what's happening in Brunswick, and I think as Brunswick grows and evolves into the community that it's going to be in these next few years, I think God strategically placed us here to bring glory and honor to him, and I'm excited uh, to see what it looks like for us to invest in the work that God's doing here. And I want to encourage you. Some of you have asked, where can I give generously? We'd love to, to catch up on our budget for the year so that we can be strategic about how we care for the needs of our community and minister here. I think it would also be cool. Some of you know that the Lord has provided for us so many things. And um, one of the things that we recognized as stewards of the resources we've been given, that um, the remaining mortgage that we have um, was um, a variable rate mortgage, not to get in the weeds too much, but you guys all know interest rates are raising and um, it was really neat. There's a team of leaders here at Hope that were uh, intentional about it and we were able to lock into a fixed rate mortgage before all the stuff got, grew and bloomed and 
so we're trying to be good resources of the investment here, but I'll just be frank with you that I would love to, over the next few years, have no debt to, to be able to move forward for the future. I think that would be incredible. And I, I don't know what that's going to look like, but I, I look at some of the future stuff that I think God wants to do here, and I'm just going to say, hey, I think that'd be really cool if we could build a firm foundation for the future through that. So let's catch up on our budget. Let's Let's um, look and anticipate what God's going to do in the future um, and if we can move forward beyond that. So I, I'm glad that we refinanced our mortgage. I'd love to not have a mortgage. Wouldn't that be cool? Uh, but, but in the midst of all of that, um, we celebrate God's goodness. We also recognize that there are strategic partners in our community like, um, like Oasis um, and uh, others, the Oaks, like we mentioned earlier, uh, that are strategic partners that we're excited about partnering with to help meet the needs of our community. And I want to encourage you to be someone who gives generously, who gives joyfully. And as we've celebrated together the stories of those who've gone before us, that uh, $300 here, a couple thousand dollars here for a bike, um, that we, we recognize as we read those stories, I think we inherently understand that, that, that there is something profound that happens inside of us when we are people who are generous with what the Lord's provided for us. That statement in Proverbs 11, when it says the world of the generous gets larger and larger, and the world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller. I think that this is a recognition for me that the Lord wants us to not be grudging responders, to give out of necessity, uh, to be discouraged through um, anticipation of what might be over the years ahead. But instead, I think the Lord's given us the opportunity to learn from those who've gone before us, who looked at their resources, not as only being, being given for their own situation, but to look at their resources and to be able to allow them to be invested for the kingdom, to be open-handed. And I think when we do that, we will truly get to experience the joy of giving. Would you join me together as we pray? Lord, we love you and thank you for the worship team as they come forward. And I thank you, Lord, that you chose to talk with us about finances and generosity and our resources. You didn't ignore this subject. That's why we don't ignore this subject. But you understand one of the myths that surrounds uh, humanity that's been a myth from that's as old as time and that is if we have our stuff um, that, that we are secure um, but instead Lord we recognize that our stuff doesn't own us but that we are called and given the privilege to respond to your goodness to uh, react appropriately to your provision to allow joy to flow out of your generosity for us to also be people who are generous enough to experience the joy that you have. I pray that this would be one of the marking characteristics of our Hope Church family, uh, that we would be people who understand what it means to worship you appropriately in every way. I pray that as we close out and worship, that you'd be exalted here in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.